Cap Radio members, get ready for the NPR Plus Podcast Bundle, a brand new member benefit. At just $8 a month or more, you gain access to ad-free NPR podcasts and exclusive bonus content. Learn more at capradio.org slash plus. Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. While not illegal, to some it certainly didn't look good. After days of scrutiny following a report by KCRA3's Capitol correspondent Ashley Zavala, Assemblymember Mia Bonta, the wife of California's Attorney General Rob Bonta, has recused herself from a subcommittee at the state capitol, which oversees the $1.2 billion budget for her husband's taxpayer-funded Department of Justice. But the lead-up to this recusal was rocky. Initially, Assemblymember Bonta was adamant that she would not step aside and even called the questioning about whether it was a conflict of interest as racist and sexist. We did invite the Assemblymember on Insight today. Her office said she couldn't make it, but did refer us to a statement that she made on Sunday on Twitter, which reads in part that while it has been made abundantly clear that there's no legal or ethical conflict, I believe as legislators we have an obligation to ensure the people of California have absolute confidence in the legislative process. I will recuse myself from matters directly pertaining to the Department of Justice to ensure that the body may focus on important work before us. That invitation remains open. But in the meantime, the state legislature, the governor, and the DOJ have been pretty quiet about a lawmaker being appointed to oversee the budget of their spouse. And again, while not technically against the rules, this matter does raise questions surrounding ethics, optics, and transparency at the state capitol. So with that, we welcome Ashley Zavala from KCRA3, who broke the story, to share more about the reporting and also the reaction to her stories. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Vicki. Thank you for having me. Let's start from the very beginning, a reporter's notebook, if you will. How did you first learn about the situation of Assemblymember Mia Bonta sitting on a subcommittee that would oversee the budget of her husband? Yeah, so... A three days before Christmas, Anthony Rendon, the Speaker of the Assembly, released the appointment list, the list of leadership, those who were going to be overseeing committees, chairing committees. And I did notice that the Public Safety Committee Budget Subcommittee Number 5 was going to be led by Assemblymember Bonta. And at the time, you know, I, I kind of made a mental check note. And again, this was three days before Christmas. So it's a very slow time in the legislature. Everyone's in their districts. There's not a ton going on. But we did see, you know, the series of atmospheric rivers and the extreme storms followed by the shootings. And so there was a lot of political happenings um, as it relates to the governor and legislature that really kind of put this on the back burner. And then um, actually there was some ethics training happening in the assembly a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And someone kind of just kind of nudged me uh, at the Capitol and said, hey, you know, did you realize that? this the situation between the Bontas was was happening and I kind of took it from there. When did you determine that this was something that deserved airtime or even whether to pursue? Because technically it's not against the rules. Right. So and I've I've had to explain this to so many people who try to pull me aside to explain to me what a budget subcommittee chair does. I'm fully well aware of that. I'm well aware of the budget legislative process, which is why we even went with the story to begin with. But before we went with anything, I spent about a week talking with former lawmakers, current lawmakers, sources that I have in the administration at the Capitol to just ask, you know, what do you what do you make of this situation? Is this something worth, you know, maybe bringing to light here? And every time that I brought it up, 
um, especially to those who are not necessarily inside the Capitol anymore. The, the reaction was the same. It was a facepalm. It was a, a jaw drop. It was a, oh, my goodness, how can they even let that happen? I mean, just optically. And so from there, I, I, I asked some you know people who aren't so entrenched in politics, taxpayers, people that I'm just close to friends with, just what do you make of this? Was this is this something you would want to know about? And every time it was, oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, how is that allowed? And so from there, um, we decided to put the story together. We had Bob Stern, who is the former general counsel of the Fair Political Practices Commission, the co-author of the Political Reform Act of 1974. And for him to come out and say, yes, this is optically a problem, we felt that it was time to air it. When did, who did you first reach out to for comment or clarification? Was it Assemblymember Mia Bonta, um, Attorney General Rob Bonta? I mean, what kind of reaction did you get? Yeah, it was Speaker Anthony Rendon. Because ultimately, he's the one who made the decision. Ultimately, he's the one who makes the appointments. And then I followed that up with Assemblymember Mia Bonta because ultimately, she's the one who accepted the position. And so those were those were my starting points. And then, um, again, I mean, I, I had some sourcing on background, people who didn't want to go on record to, again, point this out and, and maybe the way to put this together. But those were the two that I started with. You also brought it to Governor Newsom at a press event. How- how did that go? We're going to play, you know, his response. But I guess what stood out to you about his response before we play it? Sure. I mean, I I felt that the question needed to be posed to him because Rob Bonta at the time and, and in, in this moment, I had spent about a couple of days trying to get the attorney general's office to weigh in on this. I by the time that I asked the governor this, I had taken attorney general Rob Bonta's ethics training that's on the Department of Justice's website. So I figured, OK, this is the governor that handpicked this man to uh, to be the state's attorney general when there was a vacancy. And so I figured, OK, maybe he will. I I, I figured he would deflect. I, I, I figured he'd say, you know, this is matters of the assembly. This is not. And, and it's it's not it's not his arena per se. But uh, I did not expect this answer. Well, let's take a listen. The budget is obviously a paramount process for you and the legislature. And I just want to ask you about something on the other end of the budget on a different topic on public safety. Do you think it looks good to the taxpayer for an assembly member who is also the wife of the attorney general to lead a committee that oversees his budget and other departments? I literally don't know what you're referring to. Assemblymember Mia Bonta is set to lead the Budget Sub-5 Committee on Public Safety. Uh, I mean, the me. Attorney General oversees ethics in the state, distributes ethics training to state officials. I'm just telling you, I uh, thank you for informing me. Uh, the legislature makes their determination. I have no idea. You don't, you don't, referring. is it ethical or, or I don't or not? even know what you're referring to. I'm hearing it for the first time. So since that, Assemblymember Bonta has announced that she will recuse herself. Any word from the governor's office, an update? No, no word from him. And, and I, I don't expect that we will get a word from him. Some will say he is the ultimate political influencer in the state, especially for this party. He should weigh in. Others, again, will note that this is a totally separate office constitutionally. His hand can't really get into it. But that that was the answer. And you did try to interview Assemblymember Mia Bonta, and you did have an interaction at the state capitol. And for context, as reporters, when we can't get people on camera, especially when their positions are, are elected or they're appointed or their salaries are paid for by taxpayer money, you know, often as a reporter, I've done this many a times, you go to a committee hearing and you try to catch them in the hallway. That, that's the best way to get them to answer questions, yeah. right? And so that's what happened between you and the Assemblymember. Essentially, and, and I want to preface this by 
by saying, I have had a fantastic relationship with the Bontas. They've been very accessible to me uh, over these last several years. I mean, especially Rob and then Mia when she did get elected. Um, I've done many stories with them. And so I just... I guess I just didn't expect the evasiveness to begin. I really didn't expect any of her responses um, as we moved forward. But after we did our initial story, shining light on the situation, I did tell her office early last week that we were going to do follow-ups. And then I continued to send her emails. And then when um, other publications came out to show that she had blamed racism and sexism for these questions that were being raised... Uh, I continued to follow up, continued to get ignored. So I actually went to her office, no camera, off the record, you know, just I, I wasn't I just wanted to have a conversation to kind of lay out what what this could turn into, which is what it did. Um, you know, we could sit down and have a conversation and and discuss what this means and what what the taxpayer should know. Or we end up waiting on the assembly floor, which is what we ultimately ended up doing. Yeah. And we're going to take a listen in just a moment. But what, what do you make of the the claims that these reports stem from racism and sexism? I I think it's for me, it's it's um, hard to stomach because I am uh, I'm, I'm Mexican-American. I'm bilingual. One of my parents immigrated here from a different country. Uh, I am a woman. And so, I, I mean, there's I wasn't questioning her because she's a woman in power. I wasn't questioning her because she's a minority in power. That was, I mean, absolutely not the point of this. And and I think I w- it was just really shocking that that was I, I think some have, have likened it to basically another another form of gaslighting me in this whole situation. And again, it's my it's my job to ask questions. I'm a reporter. I cover the Capitol. We're not meant to be bill promoters. You know, that's not our only job there. We have to provide a check on on the very powerful uh, people that are in that building. Well, let's take a listen. Hi, Assemblymember Bonta. Do you have a second for a, just a brief interview to discuss? We don't have to do it in the doorway, but... I'll make a statement to you. I'm not doing an interview. You're not going to do... You don't want to answer questions I will that make your a statement, Ashley. That's what I will do. Sorry, we probably shouldn't be in the... Okay, what is... What's your statement? As legislators, we have an obligation to ensure that the people of California have absolute confidence in the legislative and budget process. We have spoken with the Assembly Ethics, attorneys who agreed there is no violation of the ethical rules in my holding this position. My district is amongst the highest impacted by gun violence and the carceral system, and the speaker appointed me knowing that I would be a voice for the victims and communities affected by issues of public safety. That being said, any budget proposal regarding the DOJ that comes under my purview on budget sub five We'll go through a transparent and open budget process, including publicly posting agendas, having the entire subcommittee voting on recommendations to amend, approve, or deny budget proposals, and having these discussions happen in an open session broadcasted and archived to be later reviewed and voted on by the budget committee and ultimately the entire legislature. So you're not going to recuse yourself Thank from you. DOJ That's my items. statement. Was it racist and sexist for us to bring this up? I mean, what, what about this? I offered this? you a statement, Ashley. That's I understand, but you ha- there are you so a lot much. of questions the people of California, taxpayers in the state, would like to know if you're going to recuse yourself from DOJ items. Choose to air my statement if you really actually want to offer truth 
in your in your I'm offering truth. I mean, also, but I mean, if we look at the other subcommittees, the other I'm leaders don't really truth. have other other experience. I mean, you, oh, you campaign you on go. education. Here I go. You, I mean, you campaign on education and working families, and you have so much experience with education nonprofits. Why wouldn't you ask to? do the education budget subcommittee. I mean, when we look at Dr. Joaquina Rambula and other Thank members you. that have actual experience. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Excuse me. Okay, Excuse me. Assemblymember Riabanta, the people of California would like to know if you are going to recuse yourself from Department of Justice items. Excuse me. Here are the statements that I made, Ashley, if you're being fair. Assemblymember Bonta, I am a, a journalist. Reporter, I am, I am a fair reporter, a and fair I'm asking reporter, questions. You if you would like to have you a discussion. Please. Thank, Thank you. So what stood out to you about, I guess, the tone of that conversation and that dialogue? Uh, she really talked to me like a child. And it's been a very long time since I any elected official has spoken to me that way. Um, and especially when I had given her numerous chances to respond in maybe a less tense way. Uh, it was, you know, I, I felt a sense of ageism. Uh, I felt like I was, you know, being spoken to again, like a, like a child, like I was being brushed off, like this isn't important. How dare I question her? Um, how dare I suggest that she, you know, should have gone for another committee for which she may have more experience to lead? I, I, I just that's that's what I took away from that. And also, sorry, and, and I'll mention, you know, having other elected officials push me out of the way, uh, you know, and I understand assembly members want to protect their own. I, I completely get it. But in this instance, it just felt it just felt inappropriate. It just wasn't a great feeling. Well, in the last, you know, 45 seconds or so that we have left, I mean, this isn't the end of your reporting on this. I mean, following that interaction, um, the assembly member did recuse herself. So wh where is your reporting taking you next? Right. So, I mean, that's the question is what exactly does recusal look like? I've had members say that this is an unprecedented situation where we have an overlap in powers right now. And that ultimately with the setup of these committees, it's pretty much impossible for her to actually fully recuse herself from overseeing the, you know, spending items that come from the Department of Justice or the funding for the Department of Justice because she's directing staff. And while the legislature likes to say that the budget process is transparent, truly there are a lot of discussions that happen behind closed doors, and especially with the leader of a committee that is leading the staff and could influence the staff and could influence the committee. I mean, it's uh, there. There are I've, I'm speaking with sources at this point, both in the administration and in the legislature who say that really just I mean, just flat out saying that she can recuse herself from certain items that are part of this very important work. Just flat out. I mean, it could be impossible and that maybe there's an exploration of her just fully stepping down. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Ashley Zavala is KCRA3's Capitol Correspondent. As I mentioned, we did reach out to Assemblymember Mia Bonta, invited her to appear on Insight today. Her office says she couldn't make it, but they did refer us to the statement that the Assemblymember made on Sunday on Twitter. We have a link to that in its entirety on our Insight page at capradio.org. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez.
Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Ben Jealous has worn many hats with a passion fueled by lived experience. He's arguably most well-known as the youngest person to lead the national NAACP. But in addition to civil rights and social justice, his roles also span journalism, academia, politics, and the environment, all of which he would argue are all intertwined. Ben Jealous is now leading another legacy nonprofit rooted in activism, becoming the first first African-American to lead the Sierra Club. He sat down with us about his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. Ben, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. It's good to be here. So looking into your career so far, I mean, it has such a wide ranging amount of job titles, right? It spans civil rights to journalism, environmentalism, academia. You're the youngest person to lead the national NAACP. You're now the first person of color to lead the Sierra Club. I would imagine, although these job titles are different in terms of like a headline and they've changed over the course of your life, it's also tied to a core mission held deep within you. It is. My grandmother's grandfather, who features at the center of my book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, really set the tone for professional achievement in our family. And he held a lot of titles. He was a a preacher. He was a whiskey gauger. He was a lighthouse keeper. He was a statesman. He led a political party. Uh, He was a farmer. Everything he did was for the advancement of his community. He built schools. He founded a university was for the advancement of his community in the wake of slavery. And what you learn from somebody like that is that you should have a clear mission in your professional life. And beyond that, you should be like water. You should look for the fastest way to your destination. And as you pass through, make room for others to follow you. How did those experiences not only shape your life, but your understanding of life and ultimately lead to this new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. I was born on a bridge between black and white, north and south, and even the old America of the East Coast and the cutting edge of California. What that all taught me at the end of the day is that we always have more in common with our neighbors, not just our friends, the people who look like us or dress like us or actually live next door to us, But everybody else in this country, our fellow Americans, we always have more in common than we don't. And it's really only one conversation, maybe two away from figuring that out. In my book, I tell the story of my old boss at the Jackson Advocate newspaper, the black newspaper for the state of Mississippi, and uh, the then Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi. My publisher was frustrated because the Ku Klux Klan kept burning down our newspaper The straw that broke the camel's back is when they burned it down and riddled it 
with submachine gun bullets one night. So my publisher just reached out to him and said, let's have lunch. Years later, when I started working at the paper, they were still having lunch every month. And I said to him, like, why? You know, three or four conversations probably would have been enough to get him to stop burning down the paper. Why are you seeing him every month? And he said, well, we both figured out that we're like the only guys in town that, want to, that are willing to debate the other one of us about how the Civil War could have ended, about alternative outcomes to the Civil War. So we get together every month to talk about the Civil War. And, you know, a lot of good came from that, including the fact that the Grand Wizard retired at a conversation with him. It kind of suggested that there's that his, his friendship with my publisher sort of sapped him of his of his drive to keep leading the Ku Klux Klan. And when my publisher was was dying, of all his white friends, the only one that showed up was the now former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He cried at his bedside. He said, this man, as he was praying to God to protect my publisher's soul, the old Grand Wizard said, this man listened to me. This man understood me. This man was my friend. And then it occurred to me, that not only had the Klan not attacked our paper ever again after those lunches started, but the next time it was attacked, the first call we got was from that old Grand Wizard to say he had checked in with all of his boys and none of them were involved. It actually turned out, we're pretty sure, to be a group of business leaders who simply thought that people would assume it was the Klan so they could get away with it. I mean, you're talking about such a formative experience that perhaps a lot of people don't have in their life. I mean, when we're talking about we share more in similarities than we share in differences, why do you think it's hard for us to to not only believe that at times, but actually lead with that? You know, I would push back that people don't have it in their own daily experiences. I would say that most of us do at this point. There's so much disinformation on the internet. Right. Everybody seems to have a family member or a friend who gets pulled down some rabbit hole and then you got to have a conversation with them about what the facts actually are. We have this current controversy now about Fox News national hosts knowing what the truth was and going out with something else. And so in this age of disinformation, it's actually urgent for all of us to discipline ourselves, to remember the human being on the other side of all those social media posts and connect with them. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, you know, when I'm on social media and I see what my friends are saying, my families, I don't want anything to do with any of them. But then I get to the Super Bowl party or I get to Thanksgiving dinner and I'm like, you know, I actually like these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's all that I'm really encouraging people to do just with a broader circle than their family or friends. Yeah. Um, my life has been transformed by something General Colin Powell urged me to do early in my career. He said, you know, Ben, it's easy to figure out what you disagree with somebody about. It's far more urgent in a democracy. And this is in the context of leading the NAACP. He said, what's far more urgent in a democracy is to figure out the one thing we can agree on and go get that done. That led me into very transformative friendships with a number of Republican governors who, as the, head of the, as the then head of the NAACP, I knew I disagreed on like 100 things with. But in each case, we found one thing we agreed on and we got that done. Here here in California, that was me and Arnold Schwarzenegger sitting down. He was governor. And I was at that point working on a campaign called Ban the Box. We were trying to help formerly incarcerated people get employment applications changed so there would no longer be a box in the front saying, have you, have you been convicted? Simply wanted that in the interview. So if you decide you were interested in an applicant, then you could ask them and hear how the, you know, the context they provided, when maybe that conviction was, what it was for, and then decide if you wanted to hire them. 
but it was on the application. It just got thrown in the trash. And I sat down with Governor Schwarzenegger, and he looked at me, and he said plainly, without irony, he said, you know, I used to be a bodybuilder. Half the guys in the gym were felons. All of them needed jobs. And then, you know, we went and we got that done. The first part of your title is Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. What inspired this? It was something my grandma used to say. I think a lot of people with ethnic grandmothers have at least one thing that grandma used to repeat that made no sense. This was that in my family. Three of her grandparents had been born into slavery, so how could she say this? She was chronologically dying. She was fit, but she was 103 when I really decided I had to finish the book. She would die just before I finished at 105. She was leaving us with a few mysteries or threatening to leave us with a few mysteries. This was top of the list. She said it. Her mother said it. Her grandmother said it. Her great-grandma said it. That was especially remarkable because both of them had been born into slavery. My sister said it. My mom said it. I tried to stop my sister from saying it because I was like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like the woman's grandparents, what is she talking about? And... uh, And so with the help of psychologists and genealogists and historians, geneticists even, we were able to figure out what was going on. She was repeating something that was repeated down her maternal line that people repeated because they liked the way it made them feel without questioning the truth behind it. It was not dissimilar from my grandmother's not-so-distant cousin. They both Uh, descend from the same woman. My grandmother descends from Thomas Jefferson's grandmother. My grandmother's not-so-distant cousin, Thomas Jefferson, who would say in the context of a monarchy and feudalism, all men are endowed with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's no more ridiculous for a feudal subject to say than a black woman in America saying that her people were always free. But there was something else going on. So we dug, we dug, we dug. We figured out is that the only time that that would have made sense would have been the first woman on my grandmother's maternal line to arrive in America as an enslaved woman. And that woman we now know because of DNA and historical research was a pirate woman from Madagascar. And what would a pirate woman say to her children and grandchildren born into slavery, but never forget our people were always free? And how would she say it? perhaps as a call to insurrection, as a battle cry, or just simply to instill in in each generation that freedom was our people's history, so therefore it must be our destiny. Were there some parts of the book that were more challenging to write than others? (laughs) Yeah, I, I had to walk away from my keyboard for a week the moment I figured out that Confederate General Robert E. Lee was my cousin. How did you process that over the week? With whiskey. (laughs) <laughs> I'd like to think he might have done the same thing if he found out he was my cousin. Um, but it it reinforced for me, along with other things, you know, another tough part was reading the will of a man who knew he was his cousin, the last man to own my grandmother's paternal grandfather and paternal great-grandfather, Richard Yates Bland, man who owned many enslaved people, but only mentioned one in his will, my grandmother's great-grandfather. Richard didn't have the courage to free him, to free Frederick Bland, but he, he spent every sentence of a paragraph in his will protecting him. 
And I sat down with the historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. And I said, what is going on here? And he said, well, based on the DNA, based on everything we know, these documents, others, Richard Bland understands that his enslaved manservant, Frederick Bland, is his older brother by six years. And while he doesn't have the courage to free him, he's trying to protect him every way he can. And without taking anything away from all the other truths about our country, it underscored that in addition to all of that, our country is dysfunctional. People's, you know, it can be very abusive. It's also a family. We're just simply a dysfunctional, abusive family in addition to, you know, the the nation created out of, you know, 13 colonies and the corporations that they were. And it just underscored for me that the sooner that we actually act like any other American might be our cousin, the better off we'll be. I mean, look what happened to Bernie Sanders and Larry David. Larry David was on Saturday Night Live imitating Bernie Sanders. People were like, wow, that's a little bit too dead on. They got them to take their DNA. It turns out that they're third cousins from Brooklyn. They had no idea. How did writing this book touch and shape you? I mean, I can just tell from, you know, that that one anecdote you shared tremendously. Mm. You learned a great deal about yourself, but also in the pursuit of inspiring collective healing for our country. You know, they say that if you put a bunch of mice in a box and you electrify a cube for, say, a month, it'll be four generations before a mouse from that family will climb on that metal cube again. My brother-in-law, his family lost 200 family members in Auschwitz. For him, that cube is Germany. For me, our family was enslaved in Virginia for more than 250 years, about 250 years. For us, that cube was Virginia. And then you add to that the decades after that of Jim Crowism and all of that, 300 years of suffering in Virginia. I've spent a lot of my life not far from Virginia on the Chesapeake Bay, uh, my school years were here in Northern California, summers with my grandparents in Baltimore, ran for governor of Maryland, lived in D.C. I would never cross that line. I would, people would push me and say, ah, my family ran away from Virginia twice. Why would I ever go back? But it's left me curious about Virginia. Apparently the same thing happened to Frederick Douglass. You know, he had run away from slavery in Maryland, went on to be ambassador to Haiti, have all these posts. But Eventually, he discovered he had a great passion for the state he was born into, despite the circumstances of his birth. So it definitely has made me more curious about Virginia and um, kind of put me at peace, if you will. You're listening to Insight here at Cap Radio. And if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ben Jealous about his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. I want to learn more about your role with the Sierra Club. Where did your love for the environment and your drive to protect it come from? Big Sur in Yosemite, Sequoia National Park. As a kid out here, you know, I always thought it was my white dad who had grown up in the woods of Maine, you know, uh, an umpteenth generation New England outdoorsman. I thought it was my dad. Turns out it was my mom who grew up in the public housing projects in West Baltimore. She pointed out your father had had enough of the woods by the time he was able, you know, able to drink legally. You know, my mom, on the other hand, had been deprived her entire childhood. And so they made sure every chance they could that we got out into the redwoods of Big Sur, of Santa Cruz Mountains, of the Sequoias, of Yosemite. It was the playground of, of my youth. And then in my teens, 
A company named Maxam started clear-cutting old-growth redwoods. And a, and a group of young idealists called Earth First started climbing up in trees to stop them. And it captured my imagination for a young teenage me. That was exactly what you should do, is stop them however you could. You know, do what the Ewoks would do, if you will. Uh, and I was all for it. The first time I ever organized a protest as opposed to attending one with my parents, it was helping to organize young people from Monterey County to come up here to Sacramento uh, for an anti-clear-cutting protest against Maxam. I was 14 or 15 years old, and uh, I was the beginning of a life as an environmental activist. When I came to the NAACP, my first order of business was to launch its climate justice program. That program's now about 15 years old. There are climate justice committees in all 2,400 NAACP branches. And it's helped to build a strong partnership between the NAACP and Sierra Club on the ground. And I'm excited to kind of build uh, on, on that part of my legacy of, of, as an organizer and that, and that line of work while really strengthening Sierra Club in all the ways that made us great in the beginning. You know, as a child in Northern California, we have a lot of Sierra Club chapters. You know, the, the nation has 64, California has 14, because we were just a California organization for like half a century. And um, what made those chapters strong in the beginning was that we got people outdoors, not just to stretch their legs, but to get them into the cathedrals of nature, the places so beautiful that it transforms your soul. And it transforms your commitment to preserving the most beautiful parts of the wilderness. And then we led them into fights to preserve it. Our most famous fight when I was a kid was the, the one we lost trying to stop San Francisco from turning Hetch Hetchy, a valley Muir and Adams said was more beautiful than Yosemite, into a, a reservoir, which it is to this day. But that attracted a type of activist to us that wants to stand up for the right thing, win or lose. And it empowered us to build what is the nation's oldest, largest, and most impactful environmentalist group in the country. In the last decade and a half, our Beyond Coal campaign has shut down more than 250 coal-fired power plants around this country, and in the process done more than any organization to move our country beyond its reliance on sources of power that are killing our planet. Yeah, I read a headline that you were the first person of color. You are to lead the Sierra Club. Is that just a headline to you or is there more meaning behind this milestone? You know, I would say we did have an acting executive director who's Asian American and a good man named Dan Chu. He's the, the head of the foundation. We have had black and Latino and Asian American and female board chairs. However, not one of the, or and also, if you will, not one of the, of the largest environmentalist groups in the country have ever had a black person lead them or a Native American person or a Latino. And for those groups that were in large numbers on the wrong side of colonialism, if you will, maybe on the right side, but on the side, on the receiving end of a lot of abuse, treated without um, exception as disposable by an old way of accumulating wealth in this country. It's important to have leadership in environmentalist organizations that sees those communities, that knows the leadership of those communities, 
and knows how to pull folks in as equals and get big things done, in part because the Latino community has always been the community most ready to support new regulations to protect our environment. Blacks have always been the second most likely. Native Americans are also very high. Um, but in most states, as far as the polling, what you see is Latinos and blacks are the two top groups. A movement can only be so successful taking its own base for granted. And black and brown communities, well, as Van Jones often says, there is no green vote without the black or brown vote. The corporations, big oil, big gas, figured that out a long time ago and have been targeting our communities to erode their support for protecting the environment. So there's a real strategic need, I'd say, for more black and brown leaders and the green movement. What do you hope readers gain from your book? What do you want to leave them with? What I hope to leave folks with is the urgent need for each of us to practice the golden rule with courage and with faith that our actions in our own life can have a huge impact on our nation as a whole. That's what Dr. King was trying to teach us at the end of his life. He was trying to show us through the poor people's campaign. He was not assassinated leading a desegregation effort. He was assassinated leading a poor people's campaign, trying to pull people together. And he was trying to teach us that racism, in addition to being like the boot on black folks or Native Americans or Latino folks' backs or you know, Asian Americans' backs, is also a wedge that was designed by a colonial government that understood that their preservation of the king's ability to extract great wealth from the American colonies depended on dividing the two largest groups in the colony. And in the colony, which was de defined by you know, the people who came there to extract wealth or, or were enslaved and brought there to extract wealth, the two largest groups were indentured Europeans and enslaved Africans. And they changed the definition of the word race from an old word of tribe to a new pseudoscientific theory that said that there were multiple human races. And they did that about 100 years after 1619. And it was clearly embraced by the colonial powers as a way to divide groups so they would stop rebelling together. And Dr. King was trying to teach at the end of his life, we have more in common than we don't. We can, you can't be all you can be till I can be all I can be. And the sooner that we realize that, the more power that we'll have to make our country leap forward. Ben, it was a pleasure. Thank you. That is Ben Jealous discussing his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment.
Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you want to get out and soak in live music, there are plenty of options. So much so, it's kind of tough to keep track of all the talent moving through Sacramento and beyond. Cap Radio music is coming to the rescue, sifting through the noise, curating some of the best performances to add to your calendar in the coming weeks. So joining us is Cap Radio's host of Hey Listen, Nick Bruner, and Andrew Garcia, host of Music and News. Good morning. Hi, Vicky. Morning, Thank, Vicky. Thanks for making the trip down the hallway. Oh, man. It's a <laughs> snowy, snowy journey. All right. So let's get things started. Uh, the first concert, I believe, Andrew, you're going to be taking this. It starts next week, right? On Wednesday, about a week from now? Yeah, it'll be Turnstile and JPEG Mafia, who on paper would not really seem as like likely touring mates. You've got sort of an, a glitchy avant-garde, almost hip-hop from JPEG Mafia, and a hardcore punk with like a smidge of indie rock influences with Turnstile. Uh, but they have a few similarities, being from Baltimore originally, uh, being really wide crossovers as far as like the influences they draw from and they are known for putting on really raucous live shows uh so it should be really fun great and then the next song is mystery by turnstile yes uh it, it's quite a good one off of their really um huge hit that they got a grammy nomination for uh glow on and it's been so I love that. It kind of brings me back to like my my high school youth and songs I would listen to. Nice. Well, you should make it out to the show. If you do, I recommend bringing a pair of sensible shoes. Yes. Because it should be quite (laughs) quite an active event. (laughs) Absolutely. So the next artist and the concert is actually going to be at the Red Museum, and that's here in Sacramento. I haven't heard about this venue before. Yeah, man, the Red Museum yet, Vicky? This is straight up your alley. I think you would absolutely love it. Uh, The Red Museum is over on uh, C Street and 15th, and it is a uh, sort of it's an artist uh, kind of uh, loft area. There's always like uh, rotating art installations coming and going out of there, and really really, really, really great showcases. Lots of up-and-coming indie rock acts and hip-hop acts. It also serves as a place you can rent out if you have a band uh, and you want to uh, you have it for a practice room. And the people who own it are just gigantic sweethearts. The Red Museum forever in 
my heart. So if you head to the Bay Area that Wednesday, you can come back and head to the Red Museum on Saturday, March 4th, and check out the snares. Yes. Oh, man, the snares are fantastic. Um, they're up and coming. They've been releasing a couple of singles. Uh, they released an EP in 2021, a few singles after that. Full album release is uh, what we're celebrating here on March the 4th at the Red Museum. The snares play this kind of like uh, psych rock that is just plain big. And for me, listening to them is like this release. It's just cutting loose and flailing music that I can feel more than I can understand lyrically, which is absolutely fine by me, especially given how much reverb is just soaked on all of the snares music. All right, well, let's take a listen to their song, Kids with Drugs. not move around to that that's the whole idea yeah to me I, I don't I don't know I don't think there's a good answer for that yeah I love that okay so the next artist I mean I think arguably has maybe the most playful name of, of the bunch that we're listening to today it's Pokey Lafarge ah, and they're Pokey. gonna be <laughs> performing at Harlow's on March 7th ah yes Pokey uh, Pokey <laughs> Lafarge uh, has about 10 albums out of this kind of Western blues folk tradition, this like troubadour swing that he's most known for. Uh, he was born in Bloomington, Illinois, which is where I used to live uh, shortly after college, which is why, Vicky, I'm holding you and everybody hostage to a tune that he wrote 10 years ago, because I don't care about his new stuff. It's, it's all very, very good. Uh, I'm nothing if not wistful for the climbs of the land of Lincoln, and that's why we're going to listen to Central Time. Yeah, and and he actually received praise and even released music under a label from Jack White with the White Stripes, right? Yeah, in fact, that's where this uh, song comes from. Um, this album is uh, self-titled Pokey Lafarge. It was put out on Third Band Records in 2013. Well, let's get right to it. Here's Central Time. I won't worry if the world don't like me. I won't let him waste my time. Well, I, like 
I love that. It's like a Midwest swing. Uh, it really is. And I could tell uh, just by watching him, uh, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew. You, uh, your, your, your little dance over there during that tune, uh, you're inspired to start a jug band now, aren't you? I am going to start a jug band. Uh, and I mm-hmm. like that tune specifically for the geography lesson that is also located <laughs> with it. It does it's help. so much fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Infotainment. Right. So we're moving from pokey to something a little more angsty, right, Andrew? Yes. Mm-hmm. So this How could is, you not be? Yeah. Future teens, they're going to be performing at Goldfield's Trading Post on March 8th. Yes. Mm-hmm. It should be very fun. The band describes themselves as bummer pop. Uh, which I think is is a really good encapsulation of, visual, of their I guess. sound. Yeah. yeah, sad bangers, as the kids would uh, would call it today. Uh, it's quite good. It's, it's really uncanny to listen to through some sort of alchemy. They're able to take really heavy subject matter like relationship problems and sobriety and somehow craft them into something that's like really infectious and uh, super fun to dance along to. So we're going to take a listen to Same Difference. Did I finally start to figure it? like a Jimmy Eat World feel for it a little bit, at least mm. when, mm-hmm. when I uh, was listening to them. I just want to ask the both of you, because you're doing this every other week. You're really lining up some cool concerts for people to see. How does it feel to actually go to these concerts after not having them for so long after the last couple of years? Natural. Um, it doesn't feel like I've missed a step, really. Um, I'm, 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 I'm an aging millennial. So uh, I feel like my you concert. You and I both. Yes, yeah, so, oh, you, you as well. You know, you, you know the fame. Um, I, I feel like it's just been, um, it's, it's been good. I only go to maybe like a, a couple of concerts a, a month, which actually kind of sounds like a lot saying it out loud. But um, I've been enthusiastic to to see what's coming. It's been more exciting to see what's coming back to the area than for me to actually participate mm-hmm. in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Andrew? I, for me, live music is often like a catharsis. It kind of you know makes me feel alive and 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 connected to the greater community uh, through like a love of music. And that was really something that was tough to uh, miss out on for for so long. So it feels very good. It's sort of like a tune up for the car, I think, for me mentally uh, to to make it out to live music. Um, so it feels really good, and I'm glad the broader community is hopefully getting out to these shows. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both for putting together this list. And make sure and follow Cap Radio's Instagram page, correct? That's yes. right. That is Nick Bruner, host of Hey Listen, Cap Radio's Modern Music Discovery Program, and Andrew Garcia, host of News and Music. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That is it for Insight today. You can learn more about all of our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to join the conversation, shoot us an email, insight at capradio.org. We do have a programming note tomorrow in place of Insight. We're going to be airing a special marking one year since the start of the war in Ukraine. So have a great rest of the weekend. We'll catch you back here on Monday. Save to see it's simple, but is
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.